is Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Chabot. As Britain debates how to act on Syria, we take an in-depth look at the crisis. From the country's origins after the First World War to the present day, we ask what went wrong? What will happen if the West attacks Syria? What if it doesn't? Is Britain at a political crisis point? Will America and France go without us? Is this a one-missile solution? MPs are debating the principle of taking military action against Syria. Yesterday, Britain's National Security Council agreed the world should not stand by after the unacceptable use of chemical weapons allegedly by the Syrian government. There'll now be a second Commons debate after UN inspectors have delivered their report on the alleged chemical weapons attack in Syria. This week, Syria is the sole topic of our programme. I'm joined in the studio by foreign affairs expert Martin McCauley and BFB. Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. In a moment, we'll hear from a former ambassador to Syria, Sir Andrew Green. But first, let's remind ourselves of how this all started. Here's James Hurst. Hundreds of years ago, Syria was part of the Ottoman Empire, where its mix of people, both ethnic and religious, lived side by side in relative peace. The modern state of Syria was created after the First World War and the fall of that empire. It started as a kingdom, but that quickly crumbled, and so it came under French rule before being granted independence in 1946. It is home to 21 million people, around 90% of Arab origin, 9% Kurdish. Almost three-quarters of the population are Sunni Muslims. There are Christians too, and 12% are Alawites, a version of Shia Islam seen as theologically liberal. Despite being a minority, Alawites have controlled Syria for more than 40 years as a relatively secular society, but tightly controlled. Bashar al-Assad's father came to power in a coup in 1970 and ruled until his death in 2000. When the power passed to him, Bashar al-Assad sought to present himself as a reformer. Prisoners were released and political meetings allowed, but it was a brief change. Emergency rule stayed in effect. Syria's uprising, now seen as a civil war, began in March 2011. It started with the arrest of teenagers for painting revolutionary slogans and security forces opening fire on protesters. It soon swept the country, with demands for President Assad to step down. But there is not a single unified opposition. There are political groups and religious-led ones, including Islamists. More than 100,000 people have now died in more than two years of fighting. Around two million have fled the country. Despite outrage expressed by many other countries, none has got directly involved in the conflict yet. BFBS reporter James Hurst. So where did it all go wrong? Let's look a little more at Syria's past. So Andrew Green, you were the British ambassador to Syria in the early 1990s. Hello to you. Mm. What sort of place was it then? Uh, Well, um, it was a very, very tough police state, as it uh, has been really ever since about 1970. The deal was that uh, if you're a Syrian, you stay out of politics altogether, no discussion of it, except uh, or even perhaps with your own family, uh, and you pay bribes to the people in power if they want a bribe, and then you'll be left alone. Uh, There was not the sort of random violence that there used to be under Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Uh, There's a clear system, keep your nose clean and we'll leave you alone. So uh, it was tough, but it was livable. And what was Syria's place in the region at the time? 
Well, people always underestimate the importance of Syria. Syria is one of the historic centres of uh, the whole Middle East. Iraq, Syria and Lebanon have for centuries been uh, the key elements of the Middle East. Uh, and Syria in particular uh, has been the uh, standard bearer, if you like, of Arab nationalism, certainly after Gamal Abdel Nasser left office in, Syria, in, in Egypt. So um, within the region, Syria is a lot more important than it is perceived as being uh, in the West and in Britain in particular. And the relations with America and Britain when you were there? Well, I was there during the Gulf War, and uh, Assad's, uh, Hafez al-Assad has decided for his own reasons um, that he would send uh, Syrian troops to uh, participate in the reconquest or the liberation, if you like, of, uh, of Kuwait. So, uh, to a certain extent, there was an improvement in relations, but they've always been pretty dodgy, uh, and uh, there have always been episodes when uh, diplomatic relations were broken. Okay, let's just talk about the Arab Spring. Christopher Lee, just remind us how it all started in Syria. It was the it was a protest, a straightforward street street protest. There became a street protest ended up uh, in the first stage of daubings, people doing graffiti. Um, the police reacted, the security forces reacted, and as Sir Andrew suggests, it was a society that was pretty straightforward as long as you kept your nose clean. And once these people stepped out of line, then they started shooting at the protesters. That escalated it to a level which, at first sight, nobody expected to happen. And that reflects sort of what happened right the way through the, 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 the Middle East region and uh, could have happened, for example, in neighbouring Turkey. Martin McCauley, were you surprised that it's escalated to this point in Syria? Uh, yes, because um, Syria, uh, the Bashar al-Assad, the government, uh, the security, the army, were loyal. And therefore I didn't expect them to get involved in uh, this type of civil war. They used a lot of force to begin with. Uh, they started shooting and killing unarmed demonstrators. And they should have, been, they should have known that that, uh, triggered, that would trigger a uh, uh, conflict. It would trigger, uh, you look at Tunisia, you look then at Egypt and so on, and that would, in fact, make the situation worse. But, uh, uh, again, uh, the force that they used was not commensurate, and they never thought of making any political concession because if they did, they thought that that would be the, the road to ruin. Christopher? When mm. we think about the, um, the military side of this... We tend, don't we, uh, to concentrate on the figure of the president, al-Assad, Bashar al-Assad. Now, uh, Sandra will know better than I. The important figures were actually in the army, including perhaps his brother, the one that was wounded, I think, <laughs> lost both legs. That is the this crucial is, side of this whole rebellion. This was a question I was going to put to you, Sir Andrew. Who is actually in charge at the moment? Is Assad still in charge in Syria? Well, Christopher is absolutely right. I think we've, there's been far too much focus in Western talk about this, about uh, Bashar al-Assad himself. He had never intended to go into politics, as I think people know. He went to, America, to, the, to, to, to Britain in order to study uh, ophthalmology uh, and was uh, brought back when his elder brother, who was a nasty bit of work, uh, wrapped himself around a lamppost. But the, the effect of that is that the regime is actually run by uh, Alawite generals. Uh, it's not actually run by Bashar, who is... He may have some... He may have a view to express, but he certainly doesn't run the government. Christopher? 
when you see, for example, the actions of the military, you think this is military planning, this is also a determination that they will not fail as a military, as well mm -hmm. as a state. Um, if you see that this has been the destruction, almost the destruction, physical destruction of Syria, this has been clearly a military operation over which uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad has had very little power and if you look at some of those military organizations for example Ford, Ford Division, Ford Div, which was which was run by his brother then you see at the ruthless military efficiency um, that very few rebellion organizations could counter. Now the rebellion organizations weren't just a bunch of like-minded souls and so we do have, for example, in Syria today, we have people who are declared for al-Qaeda. And if you go to Beirut, and I telephone people in Beirut and say, what do you think is happening? And they say, why are you getting involved in this on the side of al-Qaeda? You know, it's that complex an operation. So if you happen to be a general in Syria, you say, uh, that is the I enemy. I suppose the West, the West would argue that, that they're not supporting al-Qaeda, but why have they chosen to support the opposition from the start, Martin McCauley? Because it appeared secular. Uh, the demands were for political reform, uh, a more civilised way of life and so on and so forth. And then, uh, when the killings began, uh, there were civilians and they had no armed arms. So that inevitably brought in jihadis, they brought in arms and so on. And uh, in a situation, you saw this in Tunisia, you saw it in Yemen, and now in Syria, uh, the longer a civil war continues, uh, the more extreme elements... Uh, play a, uh, a more important role and the jihadis came in and so on uh, and they're armed uh, by outside powers uh, and so therefore the uh, war in many ways became a religious war in many ways. They wanted an Islamic state uh, with Sharia law and so on and they were willing to fight for that and, and die for that. Whereas on the other side, uh, the revolutionary guards, the, the Syrian military are backed by Iran and Russia who will provide all the arms they need and all the diplomatic support they need. So therefore, at present, they are winning. Uh, and you have a situation where the uh, regime, and I, I would also accept that Bashar al-Assad is a figurehead, and the military men will decide. And the military never really take political decisions. They only take military decisions, and they go for security, and they will fight until they have defeated the jihadis. All right, Martin McCauley, Christopher Lee, stay with us. But for the moment, Sir Andrew Green, former British ambassador to Syria, thank you for joining us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, how will America and Britain's other allies react if the UK decides against military action? And does it matter what the general public thinks about it? We look at the opinion polls. The apparent use of chemical weapons in the suburbs of Damascus killing hundreds of civilians has clearly lifted the Syrian conflict to a yet higher level of crisis. Christopher, why has the West taken such a stand on chemical weapons when conventional weapons have killed far more? The, um, the, the sense is, is twofold. Uh, one is that chemical weapons are, are seen as, it sounds crazy, wicked weapons. <clears throat> Uh, somebody, somebody wants to describe them as a poor man's nuclear weapons. Um, the importance of this is where else might they be used? And so this is the... If this was a, and, almost and this a is silly idea of President Obama who says we will cross a line. Once you make statements like that, then you are forced, you are forced into something that you've actually crossed the line. What happens when it's decided that this may not have been 
the commanding general in, in Syria's decision to use these weapons, but a local commander who had the two chemical weapons battalions at his disposal, or certainly one of them, that changes the whole judgment. Indeed, we really don't know an awful lot about these chemical weapons and who might have used them as it stands at the moment. But, but Christopher, just tell us a bit about the British and American intelligence so far. Okay, um, the British American intelligence is 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 based on their own intelligence systems, uh, and that's very much sort of uh, very much in, uh, electronic systems. And so they can monitor, for example, uh, telephone calls, uh, emails, etc., within the Syrian regime. Now, the best story that's running around at the moment is the fact that the Israelis picked up an electronic I intelligence bit uh, through, a, through a, a mobile telephone with the area commander calling the brigadier down the line who had used these weapons and saying, what the hell's going on? Who gave you permission to use these? Now that is the, that is the difficulty. Now, what's how, interesting? How much intelligence is good enough intelligence, though, on which to make a decision? Okay, you have a thing called overlap. So, if you say I've seen something happen, you want somebody else to say, "Look, we've also seen it. We've got cooperative evidence." You normally need about, about three, di different three different nations. Different, so, from three different nations. It can come from France. Uh, it can come from. Uh, it can come from Israel. It come from America. Come from the United Kingdom. And don't forget, a lot of this intelligence is coming through the oil companies. The oil companies have got the best intelligence of all in the Middle East. So overlap becomes particularly important. Now, what's happening at the moment is that the government has published its basis for its legal advice on Syria, and it's saying that the Joint Intelligence Committee uh, is certain that a a chemical weapons attack took place, which very few people are, are, are doubting. And then they say, and they use this phrase, it is highly likely that the Syrian regime was responsible for that. Not it was, mm. but highly likely. likely. And then they say there is some intelligence to, to suggest regime culpability. So there is that element of, of uncertainty here. And that's very important. And the United Nations guys that are going in to check out these uh, the results of these weapons attacks are not there to decide who did it only was it done. Indeed. Well, President Obama never wanted to get into a conflict with Syria. He's made that clear for 12 months. Now he's been forced into it. But what about Congress, which has to endorse his decision and public opinion in the States? We're joined now by Professor Michael Stathis, Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Southern Utah University. Hello, Michael. Um, how come Obama has been railroaded into this? Well, literally for over uh, a year, almost a year and a half, members of Congress, particularly uh, in the Republican Party, have been giving him a very bad time uh, for uh, essentially not taking dramatic action in Syria. The most vocal uh, senator, of course, has been Senator McCain from Arizona, and um, it ha did push um, Obama to the edge where he had to, in a sense, or at least he felt he had to, uh, draw a line in the sand, uh, a horrible cliche for the area, but um, he made an ultimatum, and uh, this is something that, uh, uh, you know, is usually advised against because it forces you into a corner. Uh, if uh, something happens untoward or if uh, an opponent uh, calls your bluff, you have to do something. And uh, Obama, I think, found himself in uh, in that position uh, when reports of chemical uh, usage of chemical weapons came through the line had been crossed. And what's Congress saying at the moment? Well, there's the irony. 
that many of the same people that have been complaining uh, about uh, Obama's inaction uh, are now uh, essentially uh, begging him to slow down. Uh, Yesterday, a letter was delivered to the president from 116 congressmen, uh, 98 Republicans, uh, 18 Democrats, uh, begging the president to uh, wait uh, and uh, to seek congressional authorization before he took uh, any kind of uh, uh, of action. And what's brought about that change? Um, in, uh, on, on the one hand, I think it's politics. Uh, uh, we have a situation here where uh, the relationship between the Republicans and the president is very simple. Anything that the president does, uh, uh, the Republicans will condemn or be against. Uh, even if it's something that they have been calling for for a very long time. Uh, so he uh, he's in a no-win no situation as far as Congress is concerned. Um, but what a difference a day has made. Uh, yesterday I found myself uh, lecturing in five classes uh, talking about how the uh, decision to uh, attack uh, uh, Syria had been made, and it was just a matter of time and uh, details of the attack. But uh, today, um, well, late yesterday, Obama uh, uh, made the comment that, in fact, a decision has not been made. Um, uh, Things have slowed down considerably, as I uh, see they have in uh, uh, the United Kingdom as well. All right, Professor Michael Stathis, Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Southern Utah University. Thank you. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Chris, just briefly, are we at a watershed moment in the relationship between Britain and the US over this? I don't think we're, no, I don't think we are. Um, you know, the so-called special relationship, when that happens, it's because that one side or the other actually needs the other. It's not a, it's not a permanent thing. Uh, the Americans, and as, and as, uh, uh, and as Professor Stathis has just been talking about it, uh, the Americans understand the political difficulties, and we are going through one of those political difficulties at the moment. What is, be, what is the, the common touch in this is that they don't believe, for example, that the United Nations Security Council will back any intervention. But they're talking now of going along with something called R2P. And it's the responsibility to protect. And it is a sort of an understanding which developed in the 1990s. Remember in Rwanda how nothing was done and afterwards people said, you know, two million dead, we really ought to have done something. And that is the sort of guideline that they're working on at the moment. So I don't think this relationship is going to suffer from this. And I also believe that if America decides to do it, and it's not yet clear whether the Congress has to go along with this, if America decides to do it, France will want to do it, they could do it without the United Kingdom. You mentioned Rwanda, but in terms of uh, recent history on the legality side of things, the lessons from Iraq, does it make the decision to go to war more difficult? It makes it... There, it hangs over, doesn't it, uh, Downing Street. Um, nobody is going to publish another dossier. Do you remember the dirty dossier? So they don't want it to be in, in that sort of form. And afterwards it was proved to being corrupted anyway, the dossier. What is happening at the moment is supposedly, for example, later on tonight there's going to be a vote. But it won't be the deciding vote. It would seem that Parliament is going to have to meet again and have a second debate, and that might not happen till Monday, even Tuesday, a second debate, and then vote again. And so it is this need to make it squeaky clean that the Attorney-General's advice 
to the cabinet is not necessarily published in detail but in published in general and which it wasn't in, in Iraq and we've lived with that or certainly part of the government has lived with that ever since. Well let's look at now how the British military is already being affected. Six RAF Typhoon fast jets have landed at RAF Aquateri in Cyprus as part of ongoing contingency planning for military action in Syria. Patrick Heed is there for BFBS. So Patrick what can you tell us? Well, the MOD case says that this is purely a prudent and precautionary measure to protect UK interests and the sovereign base areas in Cyprus. There are more than uh, 2,000 personnel based here, along with around 3,000 family members and dependents. Over the last few days, there has been increased activity at the base with TriStar refueling aircraft and uh, a Sentry aircraft arriving. No real surprise there. RAF Akrotiri is a UK military asset with its landing strip in the eastern Mediterranean that's been supporting operations in this area and further east for decades. Uh, we've also seen an increase in media activity at the entrance of RAF Akrotiri with TV crews parked up searching for an angle. Today's Cyprus Mail carries an article, Cyprus in the crosshairs of Syria mess, drawing attention to the fact that British military bases here could be used as a logistical support in the event of any action on Syria. Again, we've seen this in the past when the RAF tornadoes played a role in the enforcement of no-fly zones over Iraq and the Gulf Wars. It's interesting, though, this time, Kate, uh, talking to some of these Cypriots about their views on the crisis. Mixed feelings, as you can imagine. The scenes coming out of Syria in the aftermath of chemical attacks against civilians has deeply shocked them. Again, in the past, the island has accepted refugees from other Middle East crisis countries, such as the war in Lebanon. So there, there, there is talk of if it uh, happens again, then Cyprus... Could they, would they accept those refugees that flee the scene? Something else that's evolved in recent years, the number of Russian and Chinese interests and people in Cyprus. Russia and China, of course, major players in the debate on what to do next about the Assad regime. And also on Ireland, thousands of residents who've fled past and present conflicts in the Middle East. It, it's quite a mix, right. and one that again brings the spotlight onto British forces in Cyprus. All right, Patrick Eid in Cyprus, thank you for that. Um, Martin McCauley, uh, let's just briefly talk about Turkey. Um, a NATO country already has Patriot missiles deployed on, deployed on its border. How in danger is Turkey? Uh, Turkey changed completely uh, over the last year. Um, Previously, Turkey had very good relations with uh, Prime Minister Erdogan, very good relations with Bashar al-Assad. And Turkey was, Turkey was, of course, the centre of the Ottoman Empire and ex trying to solve all the diplomatic problems and making good relations uh, with everyone and so on. And then he turned completely against Assad and became the enemy uh, of uh, the Syrian regime, wanted him removed and so on. Uh, and Turkey... Uh, has a lot of refugees and there's, there's shelling on the on the border and so on. And Turkey uh, basically has got it all wrong and it's a very, very difficult position. They did the same thing in Egypt. They backed President Morsi 100% uh, and now he's out of power. And therefore all they can do is to complain that uh, he's been removed from her. So to, Turkey diplomatically has got a lot of decisions wrong in the last year and uh, Turkey will not intervene militarily on its own. It would like uh, uh, the United States and others to intervene, uh, but uh, Turkey will not do that on their own because uh, 
this, uh, if Turkey gets in, how do they get out? Well, let's look now at how this is all going down with the British public. A poll in yesterday's Sun newspaper shows they oppose military strikes against Syria by a majority of two to one. The YouGov survey highlights the government's challenge in convincing not just the Commons but also the British people that its response is appropriate, whatever that might be. BBC political correspondent Rob Watson joins us now. Uh, Rob, do opinion polls matter? Oh, I think they certainly do. They tend to be pretty accurate, uh, and I think they certainly matter to politicians. Uh, And I don't think it's uh, any great secret or mystery that politicians are very mindful of what uh, public opinion polls are saying. They will be, MPs will be hearing, have heard from their constituencies via social media, via email. Uh, And I guess a lot of what they're hearing is, keep well away from Syria. And what political risks does any intervention carry for the Prime Minister? Could it blairise him, as we've already seen on some front pages? Well, that's certainly possible. I I guess, of course, with these things, it always depends on how it turns out, doesn't it? I mean, if it turns out that that, uh, the regime really had used chemical weapons and that any military intervention uh, then deters future use of chemical weapons, well, then you come up smelling of roses. Uh, If you don't, and of course this is one of the things that that puts off many politicians from taking any form of action in Syria, then uh, you can look rather, rather down on your luck. How much more sensitive is the government to uh, the public opinion in the light of Iraq? Oh, I think it's everything. I mean, I just don't think we would be having this kind of conversation. I don't think the country would be having this kind of conversation if it hadn't have been for Iraq. I mean, this is what MPs are saying. It's what the public are saying. That that whole idea that that you could be wrong about intelligence, uh, the idea of being sucked into something, thinking that you might be doing something that could be brief, ends up going on for ages. These are all of the concerns. This is the shadow over British politics and public opinion. Yeah, that thing about being wrong about intelligence, Christopher, I suppose, um, is the British public ever going to believe intelligence ever again? No, they won't believe intelligence, but they really like to believe intelligence. What they really want to know is, look, do not give us the intelligence detail because we probably won't understand it. But then when you do give it to us, make sure you give it in a way that we will believe it. You can't do that unless there is proof. I tell you one thing, Rob will know the answer to this. I wonder if this goes wrong for David Cameron, Prime Minister, i.e. he doesn't get the parliamentary support, will he become, in a certain sort of way, it will damage him politically, perhaps? Well, it, it, it would do, but then there's a sort of fairly straightforward way of dealing with this, uh, which would be to say, look, you know, I was in favour of military action, I couldn't get p- political support, let's all move on, and perhaps that, that would be a suitable defence. Just one, one other thing I was going to throw in on this question of intelligence and evidence. I mean, from talking to some politicians, I, I suspect that evidence, intelligence, is not really the point. There are an awful lot of people, you could show them a bit of video of President Assad personally uh, planting a campaign weapon, and I still don't think that would persuade people uh, to intervene in Syria. They Basically, they just don't want to get involved in another intervention in the Middle East. I think that, for an awful lot of politicians and for an awful lot of people in Britain, is the bottom line. All right, BBC political correspondent Rob Watson, thanks for joining us today. Uh, Christopher Martin, we're running out of time. Uh, Martin, uh, things coming to a close. Your final thoughts? Final thoughts is the civil war will continue. Uh, America, France and Britain, I don't think will get involved. Uh, you say, that, really? I don't think, because what happens if, it's, if it was a rogue general who took the decision? 
not the government, not the military council. I suppose it all depends on what, what the UN inspectors, the interpretation of their evidence tends to be. No, well, the inspectors are there just to tell us that there was a chemical attack. Uh, they are not there but to... But the interpretation on how that's analysed. Then, then politicians do that. Okay, I tell you what, remember this phrase, R2P, the responsibility to protect. That is the way you go to war on this one. Uh, as long as you can prove the basics, you know, uh, there's diplomacy and sanctions have failed and that you've got specific targets. That's your, that, those, those are your sort of uh, terms of reference for it. The other thing to watch for is that I suspect this could turn out to be what Bill Clinton would have done. And that is a one-shot event. And Bill Clinton authorised... Can you have a one-shot event? Oh, yeah, and Bill Clinton did that. You go for a target which is so specific, but without actually getting mixed up with what's going on in the, in, in the, rest, of the in rest of the region. But he did it. I know times are different, circumstances different. But, you know, you, you go for a target, you have a go at it, you say, right... We've made, our, we've made our point. We are not getting into the war itself. So watch for that. So on timing, when do you, when do you look at this? Obama is probably going to get the, re, get the, the real reading from Congress and he'll get the re reading from the United Nations. doesn't need the United Nations. If the, if the Russians actually veto it, uh, there's a problem. If they just abstain, there is no problem. He can actually do it. So watch for it. Responsibility to protect. That will be the watch phrase of this whole thing. Watch Sunday afternoon. Watch Monday. It's about the earliest they could do it. Well, that is all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our contributors, including Martin McCauley and our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again to this week's programme on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. SITREP is back at the same time next week. But from now, for me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening and goodbye. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio.